Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our distinguished guest today is Dr. Sadaka Ogata, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Dr. Ogata received her PhD from UC Berkeley's Department of Political Science in 1963, and we welcome her back to the campus. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. It's quite exciting. We talked about 10 years ago, and a lot has happened in the world and uh, in your job uh, since then. So uh, let's talk a little about that. But first, I, I think one is compelled to ask you, what prepared you for this amazing job uh, that you hold in today's world? What were the formative experiences that shaped Sadako Gata? Well, I would say graduate school is not irrelevant the preparation. And I think this is a good thing to recognize as I visit a university. I think through my uh, rather prolonged graduate student days, I think there were two subjects that I would recommend very much for preparation uh, for a career of a variety of careers. One is history. I think it's very important that we know history. I don't mind which history, but a historic perspective is very important in preparing somebody that has to deal with uh, society and human beings. The other one is uh, theories. I think that also, we had to write a lot of papers in, in uh, the graduate school, and the theoretical, the analytical power is also very useful. So I would say graduate school history for the perspective and theories for the analysis. When you were thrust into this position uh, just uh, after the Cold War ended, you, you were in a, in a place to really experiment with all our ideas about theory and action and uh, how they go uh -huh, together. Uh -huh. what, what have you learned in these 10 years about uh, what happens when you apply these theories to the real world? Well, you do have to take decisions. And there it is not only uh, the history or the theory. These are pre prepared, but you do some, something of a gut feeling. You just have to decide. But I think before deciding, it's important that you listen to a lot of colleagues who come up with uh, recommendations and advice. But at the end, you do have to decide. And the decision will be, you know, you're never sure. But at the same time, in the direction... That would, uh, in my case, it is protecting refugees, which is a very important one. What, whether this decision would lead to more protection or more chances for really protecting people or not. And, and you, in, in, in this 10 years or so, you've really been presented with a lot of dilemmas where you, you've had to ask yourself that question again and again. Well, of course, there are the dilemmas. But I think, uh, I sometimes say to my colleagues, we're not Hamlets. Mm -hmm. We cannot just brood over dilemmas. And you do have to judge and, and come up with pretty qu quick decisions, I think. Where did this uh, self-confidence uh, uh, come to you? Uh, what, what in your background uh, made you that way? I don't know. You don't, okay. I don't know. <laughs> what, what about uh, 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 the persistence? In, in your work, you, you really have to keep at it uh, as things unravel. Well, because there's nobody else. Uh, this kind of work, uh, there are many uh, agencies, many uh, international agencies, uh, non-governmental agencies, many people in the field. But when you are really given the, the uh, mandate 
to protect refugees, you cannot give up. And uh, I think our greatest satisfaction is, and I always say our because it's not just me, but a lot of colleagues, especially those who are on the ground and doing this, if they can make the right judgment in a way that can make a little difference for the better for the people, that's a great success. And that satisfaction carries a long ways. When, when the Cold War ended, uh, we, we thought uh, we had a new world order. Order, yes. Uh, and, but in fact, and especially in your job, you, you really came up against a, a kind of a new world disorder That's right, in many yes. ways. How has the end of the Cold War changed the nature of the work of uh, the, the Office of the UN High Commissioner? Well, in two ways. Um, the number of refugees fleeing has gone up. And the causes for refugees to flee has also changed from a fairly clear interstate conflict to internal conflicts. And that has uh, also changed the way we work. We can no longer just be waiting for refugees to cross international borders and receive them, uh, because international borders meant much more than uh, today when the internal conflict borders are really fuzzy. In, in this new environment, let, let's uh, uh, help us, our audience, understand better what this new environment... It seems to be the case that the great powers uh, uh, are, are more reluctant to intervene uh, after uh, the intervention in Somalia. Is, is that fair? I think that is a fair, especially the United States, because I, uh, the, it was, they suffered uh, huge casualties. But also, uh, there is a limit to intervening in internal conflicts among various factional leaders. You cannot say this person is the right person or that person is the wrong person. Uh, it doesn't, you cannot really divide the uh, participants parties to the conflict in terms of good or bad, or the right or wrong, because the causes are much more complex. It's really sometimes tribal, uh, sometimes political, uh, sometimes uh, sheer human greed, all sorts of... And you cannot really... An outside force of what even a very great country like the United States cannot uh, bring determining control over these developments. Isn't there also a great uh, reluctance, especially in the, in the industrialized countries, to, to suffer uh, the loss of any of their soldiers' lives? Uh, yes. At the same time, when you look at Bosnia, there were, I mean, Fra France suffered the greatest number of losses of their soldiers. There is a degree of difference of, of how much uh, they can expose the danger of their own people. Do you, at, at the same time that, that there is this kind of reluctance, uh, expectations about what an agency such as yours should do, an office such as yours should do, in these, has really risen, hasn't it? Well, there is reluctance, but there's also pressure. Because uh, much of the human sufferings before this television age, nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. But now when these sufferings come on the screen, there is something that governments have to do. Look at Kosovo. When, they, when last summer the, uh, the people were out in the woods in very difficult situations, knowing that the Balkan winter was coming, 
something had to be done. And there was, that is, has prompted action on the part of the United States, trying to, uh, Ambassador Holbrook negotiating with President Milosevic, something has to be done. And uh, the same thing with Rwanda, after the genocide, with uh, looking at the uh, refugees, uh, terrible, terrible suffering of people who fled, something has to be done. But that something, I think the governments would like to make it as a little sacrifice directly of their ground forces as possible. So they look for all sorts of other means. And one of them is to help the humanitarian workers. And, and so, so on, on you're, you're in a way caught between a rock uh, and a hard place uh, as you do your work in the sense the uh, uh, expectations are there that something needs to, to be, be done. done. People are seeing on CNN mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. starving mm -hmm. children or the victims of, uh, of war or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, the, the, the leaders of the great uh, uh, powers uh, are reluctant to possibly give all that might be needed to, to resolve mm. the situation. That's right, exposed to much of, their, of, their, of the lives of their own people. And, and that's where you have to navigate. Well, uh, that is where we have to do our job anyway. If they're civilian victims and if many of them are refugees crossing borders, we have to be there. But when the governments uh, are pondering, are not decisive in the action, uh, we end up exposing more of our staff in dangerous situations. And that is quite a serious dilemma for me. How much do I let our colleagues... Uh, um, suffer or expose them to danger and our colleagues tend not to want to come back they want to do everything for the people and and your office in is, is in a way the the representative of the displaced in these situations yes we we represent the victims especially the refugees but some of them internally displaced when they cannot cross national borders either and, and have, have, have the tasks as, as these horrendous situations and, and during this 10 years since you've been, you, you can go across the globe, Rwanda, uh, uh, the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia, uh, uh, and, and, and now the, the Great Lakes area in Africa, crisis uh, after crisis, is, has, has what you've had to do, the functions, the tasks that your office has un have to undertake, ha have they... they have they remained the same? Have they grown? What, what has been the evolution of the functions of your office? Well, it's expanded, certainly, uh, because the causes of these situations have become more and more complex, and, if, and you have to have an expanded capacity to deal with the crisis, but also a, an attempt to come up with some comprehensive solutions. And for that, you have to persuade governments and of different, various kinds. And, and part of what your personal job is to do is, is to prevail, uh, persuade countries to accept people who are fleeing from their own oh, countries. Yes, yes, and keep the borders open. These are always uh, efforts that we have to make when they are, uh, there is a large exodus. Make sure that the borders are, are open so that they can be received. And then what we have to do is to establish safety and also uh, bringing the necessary relief uh, materials too. But I'd like to just emphasize it's not just giving things. You have to assure safety, and, and that is the most important part of protection work. What, 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 as you argue with governments to, to, to do something, uh, both in terms of, of 
supplying you with resources to do your work mm -hmm, on the ground, mm -hmm. or in the case of neighboring countries, to receive some of it. What, 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 is, what is most persuasive, do you think, in, in, in getting action on their part? Well, I think the desperateness of the situation is also is always a very persuasive cause. And then, on our part, we have to show that we have effective programs to present so that... And then I have to persuade governments who are uh, outside but are willing to or feel that they have to help to give us resources, money, people. And, and uh, uh, in a way, as you operate in these... Your, your, your organization has something of the nature of a, of a multinational entity that, that's moving into so many different settings, in some sense providing the same tasks for the refugees, but on the other hand, uh, often undertaking new tasks. Well, there are different situations, very much like Iraq. It was in a, a sovereign country that was a rather... Uh, and uh, the refugees tried to flee f across borders. Some crossed over. Some were brought down back to the country in which they had to stay, but they were not being protected. So, so that kind of situation was also rather new. A big, uh, a large percentage of the people who you have to help are women and children. Well, yes. Any group is of a community usually consists of women and children. The majority are. But they seem to be the most vulnerable oh, in, yes, these, in these situations. And older people. Older people feel very lost. And it is your task then to provide the, the, the minimal uh, uh, standards to, to, uh, f for their life so that they mm -hmm. can go on and deal with the situation as, as it is occurring. Shelter, food, sanitation, and then also comes education. Those are uh, various aspects that we have to provide. Now, now increasingly in these situations, we, we've talked about the reluctance of the great powers. Has your operation become something of a, of a political football in the context of uh, situations where there isn't a political settlement? For example, Yugoslavia before See, Dayton. Uh, Great powers are not reluctant to support us because mm -hmm. we are important in the interval period in which peace cannot be really, political solutions don't come through. So we had enormous support in that mm -hmm. sense. At the same time, uh, so political solutions require a lot of negotiations. Various national interests do not um, converge. And the, the, uh, especially uh, in Africa, for example, Great Lakes region of Africa, there were differences in national interests among the powers. So the external negotiations among them uh, takes, requires a lot of persistence, human uh, leadership, human resources, and they, they do not... I think the easiest answer would be that national interests don't converge very often over these internal conflicts. Some are more in favor of one group, others are more in favor of other groups, and these are very delicate issues. And what does that mean for your organization on the ground doing its work in, in, in terms of humanitarian assistance? Well, we have to work much longer in conflict situations and try to do the best when we know that uh, we cannot pr bring the last answers. And, and uh, in, in these, uh, in these uh, uh, situations, 
uh, have, uh, uh, have, do you think that your organization has been unfairly treated under certain circumstances? Uh, and here I have in mind this, the debate, well, maybe we shouldn't be intervening with humanitarian systems. Maybe that this work is becoming uh, uh, a political uh, uh, football when the parties can't sit down and reach a settlement. How do you answer those critics? I can't answer every critic because there's so many anyway. <laughs> but uh, I think the choice would be then, are you going to let these parties fight out? And that's also hard to do to, in today's world when there is much greater transparency of this human suffering. And uh, to say that let's just all leave and uh, let these people fight out and let as many people die as possible, that's a very hard choice for most leaders too, even if they're not determined or they are not coming out with extremely... Uh, de uh, decisive answers. So I think a prolonged situation of un uncertainty seemed to be more the characteristic today. And, and part of your job and of your organization is, is really to, to explicate these kinds of dilemmas, to motivate the, the leaders you're dealing with to, to, to come act. Up with, yes, persuading and really insisting that they act. One of the, the issues uh, has been uh, uh, the UN's impartiality in some of these situations. And I'm curious, does, uh, is there a conflict on occasion between the integrity of the work you're doing, humanitarian assistance, uh, and the impartiality that uh, 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 the UN uh, tries to deploy when it, it, it operates in a particular setting? Here I have in mind Yugoslavia. Well, in the Bosnian situation, there were three ethnic groups that fought. And uh, in cert each one uh, had victims. So to the extent that we could identify the victims, we always tried to bring relief to all of them. And not, uh, of course, there were some sympathies more for, for example, the Bosniaks. At the same time, for those Serbs who required assistance, we made sure that we reached them too, in order that they do not feel left out, so that they would also watch us as being humanitarian to everybody in need. So those are rather difficult uh, choices to make, but we did uh, try that. And one of the reasons why I think we are able not only to function during the war, but also after the war and in the course of Dayton, it, I think it was decided that uh, we continue to lead the repatriation in, uh, of uh, the refugees after the war. They were all going to go back, and, and we were given that role. I think it is because at least uh, not everybody, every party was satisfied, but not every party was dissatisfied. And we were, I think it was the fact that we tried to be, meet the needs of everybody who were in need. So, so in a way, you're... you're so I'm trying to say that impartiality to work it out requires a lot of thinking and efforts, but I think that in the Yugoslavia situation, that was recognized. And it sounds like you're saying that you're really grappling with reality. Oh, sure, yes. And, and so, so uh, uh, that, that somehow you're, you're shaping the best solution 
in in a situation possible but best, best possible, possible by the best possible uh, uh, look at the federal republic of yugoslavia i mean uh, the, the serbs mostly of there are mm. serbs they have taken refugees in the course of the war bosniaks too croats but largely serbs but serbs from bosnia and also serbs from croatia and they were today i think maybe they have the largest uh, refugee a single caseload of refugees in their country, some 350,000 Croatian Serbs. We, as a refugee organization, do help the uh, refugees who are in Serbia. And in that sense, we know what their needs are and we take a correct attitude in refugee protection and assistance in Serbia. But that doesn't, so that that doesn't mean that we take their side and are not raising voices against what they're doing in uh, Kosovo. An issue that seems to have emerged in in this recent period also is security for uh, both the refugees and for the humanitarian workers. Oh, very much so. How has that complicated your agenda and and what have you done about that? Well, we have uh, tried to make uh, security issues of our own staff very high in the priorities of getting resources as well as uh, uh, training the staff. We have had to sec- have we increased a lot of field security officers so that at least in every dangerous situation there will be a security specialist who could advise our colleagues. Uh, I think all the people who are going to the field are trained for security consciousness. Also not only them but their supervisors are also to be uh, to be trained and informed. We have given them equipment. We insist on giving them holidays because a worn out, dis- distressed worker is, a danger- is already risking uh, his own life, his or her life. So these security measures we have done. But in spite of that, I cannot say that it's perfect mm-hmm. or that we were totally risk free. We cannot say that because the exp- situation that they're exposed is a very volatile one. And you've also had to confront the the demilitarization of uh, the, uh, the 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 refugees themselves. I mean, some of these people are not legitimate refugees, but but may be uh, participants in the war who who yes, may yes, even be yes. war criminals. Well, war criminals are very hard to indict because uh, that we cannot do. But at least uh, militarized or, or armed people, we we will either have to insist that. The security responsibility lies theoretically on the country of asylum, but many of these countries do not have the capacity to really uh, patrol the refugee camps, monitor the situation, and so on. So either we have to uh, we have uh, tried to bring in security teams, or we have tried to uh, strengthen the the law and order maintenance capacity of local policemen and so on. These are things that we have tried to do. But it's not a perfect answer. But we do have to continue to to do a little bit better. In the end, these these, uh, refugee situations uh, uh, require a comprehensive settlement Mm -hmm. and a comprehensive solution. What what can your uh, office and your colleagues do to further that reality? Although it's not something that you can do on your own. Uh, when there, whenever there are comprehensive settlements, whether it was a Com- Cambodian uh, under ANTAC, the UN had a very comprehensive transition team, 
or whether it was the Bosnian, uh, the Dayton Peace Agreement, we are usually invited to make comments on the terms, which we do, and try to make sure that the, uh, the settlement does reflect the important, important principles and process for the return of refugees into much more uh, normal life. And so we do, in a way, we are usually invited to make our comments on the various peace agreements. And, and how, how does the return and, and reintegration uh, uh, of the uh, refugees uh, affect the broader process of, of building peace and securing mm -hmm. uh, uh, justice in some of these places? Well, on peace, I always feel that a country that has large number of their population still outside the country cannot, is not at peace yet. Return of, their, of refugees is a very important ingredient of reestablishing peace within a, of a country. Now, justice is a very complicated issue because if you insist on justice, and uh, what do you do with people who were caught and fled or people who evaded draft? And all? There has to be a balance between amnesty and justice. And these are always... Uh, problems that I think, whether it was South Africa, used its way. Uh, Cambodia is looking for its way. Uh, Rwanda is looking for its way. And I think Dayton is looking for its I think every, in every post-conflict situation in the process of uh, achieving reconciliation, reconstruction, the issue of amnesty and justice is are very important aspects. In this process, all these difficult situations, you, you, you remain something of an optimist. Is that fair? Well, uh, I think so, in the sense that what you do, the inputs my office makes should make a difference. That's the optimist, basic optimism. Uh, of course, if facing every situation, there's sometimes you get feel very de desperate, really... Uh, uh, downtrodden sometimes, of course. Looking back at this, this 10 years since you've been here last, what, what, has, what has surprised you uh, in this uh, decade of, of dealing with the world disorders? Here you were, a political scientist <laughs> trained in international relations. I suppose... Uh, the world reality is it's not a rational world. It's not a self, uh, a purely dis uh, uh, that self-interest is a real one. Political motivation is a real one. Power is a real one. And I think we should not be so naive to think that we can change the world into heaven so easily. And what, what about uh, any disappointment come to mind as, uh, as you look back on uh, the period of your tenure? Well, there are disappointing elements in many of the uh, operations we have carried out. I mean, I think the fact that we were, we were not able to uh, really help the uh, refugees from Rwanda who fled to uh, Zaire, we lost track of so many lives. That's a very, something that hurts me. And I think that is a reality that uh, we have to come to grips with. Whether, how better we could have done, I don't know. Or the fact that we were not able to bring back a lot of the minorities uh, to the, their places of origin in Bosnia. 
I always think that maybe time is what we need. But time tends to, um, shall I say, let people forget. Right. And maybe we forget too much. But at the same time, time also solves a lot of wounds too. So in, in overcoming, there's a lot of hatred in this world. And overcoming hatred in the sense of insecurity, sometimes you have to forget. So um, there are things that we could not have done. And then the fact that there's so many asylum seekers coming to uh, industrialized countries and the doors are getting tighter and t- tighter does worry me. And, and what, what can you do about that uh, as a leader of this organization? Communicate uh, uh, to the world the broader implications if, if the doors I think, are shut? Uh, I think we have to be very clear, not in a judgmental or condescending way, but bringing out the realities, persuading and trying to convince the importance of uh, really looking after the refugees and then the... Uh, people who, need, who are in need of protection. Uh, for you and, and your colleagues, I, I guess the individual case of a particular individual can be quite moving uh, and, and quite uh, effective in, in continuing to give you the momentum to go on. Oh, that's what m- many of my colleagues really do deal with people. We do deal with people directly. And I think that's the rewarding part of our job, but also the frustrating part. Where do you think your organization has been most successful in this this Well, in the long run, in many, many places. I'd like to know uh, how many. We must have uh, been successful, successfully solving the the lives and the problems of millions of people. And what we would like to do, and one of my colleagues is starting this, celebrate the refugees, find out what has happened to them, and get a total picture of how much uh, how many people were, were in this uh, refugee situation, how many have found a solution to their fate, and how many are really a very, very active and important part of society. I think it must be millions, and I think that is the kind of thing that we should bring out to the world more. And, and is, is that kind of information one of the secrets to your surviving in this role that you play? In, oh, in I, I, I think it's not just because we want to survive. We want the people to survive better. Right. But, uh, but I think these, these, these real better aspects of our, the results of our efforts should become better known. One of the uh, uh, concerns of international relations scholars is the building of norms and values. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how do you think these processes that you've been a part of, uh, and in what ways have, have they built or are building a new set of norms with regard to international cooperation and, and dealing with uh, uh, these situations of disorder? Well, I think norms are very important. Standards setting is very important. And trying to move societies and human beings in the direction of complying with the norms and standards are important. At the same time, my personal view would be much more to develop human beings, communities, persons in a direction that help them comply with norms. I think to set up norms and say you have not achieved the norms and criticizing is maybe important sometimes, but I would like much more efforts to help people, uh, communities, states, to move in that direction. And I think there should be much more 
uh, people, communities, and uh, individuals, nation states, directed efforts. And, and, and in a way, what, what is involved in, in this work is really compassion, a, a kind of international compassion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, compassion combined with rather cool judgment, I would say. Just one doesn't work. And, but, but the two together? The two together can go a long ways, I think. Uh, if you were advising students uh, uh, planning for their future, how they should prepare for uh, the next millennium, uh, what would you tell them about uh, 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 this uh, world of disorder and how we can move away from it and how they can prepare for it? Uh, being a former professor, I usually insist that students work hard and study. That's one thing <laughs> okay. I insist. At the same time, they should not be just studying their subject and thinking about their own careers only, but to reach out. I mean, students are elites, future elites of society, and they have to have a sense of importance of sharing their resources, their wisdom, their opportunities. So I think um, a much more attitude of sharing. And for that, it's not a bad thing for students if they had the opportunities to go and work in refugee camps or um, uh, with the slum areas, just to know that there are people who are much less fortunate and that the students should have that sense too. What, what, what do you think your organization will look like in 20 years? 30 years down the road? I hope my organization will be smaller, <laughs> more compact, efficient, but maintain a capacity to move quickly whenever there's a need. And uh, to, uh, to uh, still, there will be people in need of protection and help. There will be refugees, I have a feeling. And we have to be able to cope with it. And the premise of your answer implies that the world will have changed somehow. Uh, how will it have changed? I don't you? know which way it's going. Right now it, goes, it seems to be going in the wrong direction because uh, the, the power structure, whenever there is a uh, power structure of a sort that the powerful can in influence the less powerful, the, uh, the, the, uh, it's the influence of the uh, global hegemon, where that is lacking now. So everybody's out for him or it itself. It's a disorderly process. And I don't know how the power structure is going to reemerge. One final question. Uh, philosophers and, and academics are always, uh, uh, in some way, addressing the issue of doing good in the world. And, and that can be a pretty complicated uh, uh, undertaking because, as we've indicated, the world is not perfect. Uh, do you have any thoughts on sort of the limitations on uh, uh, undertaking uh, humanitarian efforts and, and the complicated situations in which you find yourself acting? Oh, I never advocate for to to do good in the world. I mean, I, that is, I, I don't think that's the attitude of academics. Or you, you uh, I think there's a division of work. The result of your, your, what you do should contribute to doing things better. Dr. Ogata, thank you very much for being with us today and, and giving us a, a sense 
of uh, the uh, extraordinary complexities of our world and of the work of your organization in it. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.